0: Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 16, Colossians two sixteen through 23, beginning then with verse 16, hear now the word of the Lord, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase, that is, from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the, you, with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Let us pray momentarily. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would come away with something of the power of this text for our own lives. We pray that we would come away with Good thoughts and bad in terms of the things that we need to put away from us, but good thoughts in terms of what we gain in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a bit of a sermon outline um, there on the bottom of the first page of the bulletin. <clears throat> and um, First of all, we deal with the, the title of the sermon and, um, and then its context. And um, we, we see that uh, the title is Christian Liberty and FOC. I've explained FOC down in the sermon outline, Freedom of Conscience. Uh, Christian Liberty and uh, the Freedom of Conscience. The word conscience is a big word. It, it could use a little uh, definition, also the word uh, liberty. But we see that uh, this is not an extraneous concept just hearing the words hearing the theological the verbiage the language you might think well this is another part of another, another abstract part of theology Christian liberty well I bring my copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith here and we see that a whole chapter of the Westminster Confession chapter 20 <coughs> bears on this subject so it is not a minor subject the divine thought they only have um, I should I should remember how many chapters there are in the confession 28 31 33 that's it about 30 33 30, 33 chapters in the Westminster confession so 33 theological heads and of those 33 Christian liberty is one and I would I, I, I emphasize this because I know Christian liberty is not a big thing in people's minds. People are thinking about Christology, about the doctrines of Christ, about creation, about the second coming, things like that. But they don't often think and and many people in our church, if you put this on a quiz and you ask people which of the which subject is not dealt with in the confession of faith and you included Christian liberty or freedom of conscience, I'll bet you that that would be the one that was chosen by so many people. They just wouldn't think that that was a part of our forefathers thinking but it is it was and it wasn't there just because they had this idea it's there because they saw this idea in the scriptures and it comes before us this morning in the in the way of uh, Colossians so uh, Christian liberty liberty normally means freedom it's a synonym for freedom And I I want you, when you leave to this morning, I want you to leave with a real feeling of freedom in your hearts and your minds. I want you to take that home. You can can meditate for a moment. What does freedom mean? What does freedom mean for me? I got an illustration of this early on in my life. Well, not that early. But when my first car was paid off. And when when I paid that last payment, I had a real feeling of freedom. I no longer have to pay those hundreds of dollars each month. Um, when I left Lynchburg for Scotland, we didn't, we were not able to pay off the house, but we sold the house, and we got off out from, out from underneath the mortgage of the house. Now, we loved the house. It was great. But there was a burden each month when the mortgage bill came due. We had to pay that mortgage. So when I was out of that, I mean, not only was it great to head to Scotland, but we were heading to Scotland as free people. We were footloose and fancy free in Christ. We had no, no more bondage here with this mortgage that we went with. So it's that kind of thing. If you, if you, can, if you can think about images of freedom in your mind, because freedom is kind of elusive. We, uh, in this world, ever since the fall, Bondage and the feelings of bondage are much more prevalent. All of us walk around this world with uh, weights upon our back based upon uh, financial and uh, ethical, uh, experiential bondage that we have been in or are in, depending on our circumstances. And so that's what uh, this idea of uh, Christian liberty is about. It's about liberty, but then it's especially about the liberty that we have because of being in Christ. If if Christ, if we are really wed to Christ, if Christ is really ours, then all of those all of those things that would bo- put us in bondage have been taken away. And the and the apostle encourages us: don't be don't be, bound, don't be bound by new bondages. Enjoy your freedom. Try to live your life. Try to point your life or focus your life on the basis of freedom and not bondage because you are free in Christ. Christ gives us an example of freedom then that we can apply to our lives. Now if I read from the Westminster uh, the 20th chapter you can see how this is codified in our confessional writings. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in, now there's a list of things here, their freedom from the guilt of sin. Jesus helps us with that. The freedom from the guilt of sin. The condemning wrath of God. Why why won't people, why won't people, more people go to church if they're not Christians? Well, because going to church reminds them of the existence of God. The existence of God reminds them of his holiness and his pure perfection and his judgment. And they think, why should I go into this place and be troubled? The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law. The Ten Commandments of Moses or the moral law is a constant... Uh, list against us of where we go wrong. And so if you're in Christ, you know that Christ has fulfilled every point of the law. So even though you haven't, if you have him, you have it. You know, you have what he has. And then they're being delivered from this present evil world, the bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, from the evil of affection, afflictions, for the evil of afflictions. Um, when... Bad things happen to us in this world. They are a burden. But in Christ, you've already been delivered from all of that. Even though you must go through it in the flesh, in the spirit, you're already sailing past it. The sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. As also in their free access to God and in their yielding obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but a child like love and a willing mind, all which were common also to the believers under the law. The Old Testament people, like the psalmist we read this morning. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. And it's much of that that Philippians, that Paul refers to in Philippians here. He's referring to the the um, freedom from the ceremonial law and also from the Pharisaical law. So you've got in the in the Old Testament people, you had uh, ceremonial laws of washing and cleansing and traveling and worshiping and these kinds of things that um, that are taken away because we're all we're complete in Christ. Christ fulfilled all of these Old Testament things, and uh, and then we're also free from uh, the the Pharisaisms of the Old Testament people. That is, they they, they had one burden was the ceremonial law. The other was the, 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 their applications of the ceremonial law, which they considered equal with God's law. And so both of those, uh, the, the divine said, we're free from uh, these things. And uh, uh, it goes on, the second chapter t- speaks, it says God alone is Lord of the conscience. So the conscience is the, the second word that we need to look at here freedom of conscience. The conscience is that inner voice that we have in our, in our bo- bodies and in, uh, in our spiritual <coughs> natures <clears throat> that is a little voice that tells us when we've done things wrong. And uh, the problem is in fallen man... The conscience doesn't always operate rightly. The conscience does operate rightly when it uh, indicts us for things, for departures from the Lord. But it but it doesn't do right when it makes us feel guilty for the things that man have said and man have written that are totally separate from what God would have us to do. And so, uh, the conscience is like if you think of your conscience like a little like a little man or a little woman. That's in your mind, and you know you hear that little man, a little woman, telling you: "You stink, you're rotten, you didn't do this right, you failed. You know you should have done this, you should have done that." And it, the the sad thing that the Philippians will bring out is that. Often with mankind, we feel guiltier about the things that men press upon us than upon the things that God presses upon us. So these little men and these little women inside of us, they are busy little creatures. They just go all day long telling us how we are bad and how we don't measure up. If if, if they could, if we're Christians... If they could, they would drive us from Christ. They would say, you're too bad to be a Christian. Whatever Christ has done for you, you're not effective enough with that. You're not successful enough with that. And so you shouldn't even count yourself as a Christian. Oh, these are ugly little people inside us. They are ugly. The conscience can either operate positively or negatively. But when it operates negatively, that is based upon not what God has said, but what men have said. Oh, what a wicked, toxic little creature. The voice it's like a, a little devil or witch that's inside of us. And um, the Lord would have us put off all of this kind of, you know, and so he he wants us to be he wants us to be free in him, he wants us to understand our freedom in him, and then he wants that little voice to operate correctly. And he wants us to, to not feel guilty about all the things that we are accused of that have nothing to do with the Lord. So we plunge into the, based on that introduction then, we we, we, uh, we plunge into the text, and what the first thing we see is that this comes out of the context of this passage, because uh, Paul has been speaking about the magisterial nature of Jesus Christ, how majestic he is, and how high and lifted up, and how he is the key to all reality. Chapter 1 we saw where it says that in him all things consist, even applying his sovereignty to the, the uh, physical elements of this world. And then he said that he is superior uh, over all things in the, in the 18th verse, that Christ might have preeminence. That whatever we think of, you know, when we go to a political party meeting and we're talking about these important things, events that are going on, even then we should be thinking to ourselves, this is great. But, you know, above all this is the preeminence of Christ, the reign of Christ, the glory of Christ. And uh, that, that's so helpful in uh, distinguishing between the things of this world and the things which have been revealed to us. So Paul has been talking about the significance of Christ, and we saw how uh, he, then his, he exhorted us in, in verse 11 uh, to be united with Christ in circumcision and in baptism. Or uses those two words interchangeably to, to speak of our union with him, because if we're if we're if we're self consciously united with Christ, then we have a, ch- a better chance to overcome our sins and to live successfully in this world of ours. So what he gets to what uh, Colossians this is more of a philosophical observation, but what he gets to in Colossians is that that Christ. Is not just a not just the Son of God he's not just uh, our divine Savior uh, but he is uh, a, a, a an elemental because of his deity because of who he is he is he is the unit unit factor for the whole system of everything that we do so that's why I use the word holistic uh, as part of the outline Union with Christ baptism means that we are connected to a holistic system so, Paul can so easily say Christ, you know, worship Christ, but what he, when he says this, he's incorporating the idea that Christ is the unifier of all things, that he is, the, he is the son who has come into the world from the Father to show us how we ought to think. And what he, the way he wants us to think is to realize that the living God is the core and the son is the rep- representative or the emissary of the living God unto us. And, um, and so he wants us to have, he wants our whole lives to be changed if we know Christ. Because Christ is much more than just a name. He's even more than the incarnate Jesus Christ. He, he, is, uh, he, he becomes, in, in our thought, he becomes a, a principle that unites all of our thinking. And it's really amazing. Colossians is really, in some senses, Colossians is the most philosophical of, of all of the Bible. And it's exciting on that basis. So in verse 16, our first verse, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, plural. Now this does not mean the Sabbath that was ordained by Moses in the fourth commandment. But if you read through Leviticus, it, it tells us how there were other Sabbaths that were erected because because of the special nature of the Lord's Day or the seventh day, eighth day now in the New Testament, because of the special nature of that, if they, if they selected other special days, like the, the, the feast might begin on the Sabbath or it might end on the Sabbath, but there were, the first day of the feast was special, and so that might be a Sabbath. And so there were other designated days in the Old Testament and Moses' legislation and had to do that they called Sabbaths, plural. It wasn't the Sabbath, but they were Sabbaths. So Paul says here, Let no one judge you in food or in drink, regarding a festival or a new moon, and that sort of thing. Now in verse, uh, in verse 16, it, it speaks of the, this our commitment to Christ or our unity with Christ in terms of judgment. What is Paul getting at? Well, First of all, we need to think, what, is, what does it mean to judge? What is it and what is it not? The judgments about which Paul is talking, about which he gives examples here, are things like food or drink or festival days or a new moon. There were also new moons in the Old Testament, the, the calendar. and Every time the people began a new time period, like a month it was, it was good to have a new moon celebration so they would give glory to God about the passage of time and about this month uh, that they were about to enter. But, uh, but Paul says uh, in verse 17, these things were all good in and of themselves. They all had good spiritual components to them, but they were all shadows of things to come. They were not the substance which is Christ. So these are all things pointed to Christ. So if Christ has come, then why would we begin to judge each other because um, you know the, this family or that family didn't um, celebrate the, a new moon celebration. You know the, uh, because Chris Wright is a friend of mine, I, could, I can use him as an example here. I, I won't do that with the rest of you. But you know, I could, I, could, I could be really I could be all over Chris Wright, because I know his whole family, they, they do nothing on the new moon, you know. I can have that in my I can have that in my craw. I can think, man, you know Moses did. Moses did. Moses said that these wow. things were good, and uh, but that you know I like Chris in every other way, but he just completely neglects the new moon. It's no, no sense of uh, the the Old Testament calendar. What a scufflaw. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. Paul says here that all of these things were a foreshadowing of Christ. They they were a foreshadowing of how we ought to be totally devoted to God. They they were a foreshadowing of how our time conception ought to be related to God. But uh, was not Christ the one through whom time and the moons were created? Was he not the eternal word through which God the Father spoke all things into existence? Well, then if Christ has come, you see, uh, we, we can still glory in these things. We can still glory in the, the beauty of time, the beauty of, of the calendar, the beauty of our dedication to God. But we do it now, not in terms of those things, but in terms of Christ. And when Paul wrote this, that the, the, in these churches like Colossae, Colossae, wherever there were Jews, and there were, a lot of these churches began, they began in the synagogues. The synagogue was the, was the jumping off point for the, this new church development. And so there were often a lot of people in the church that were, that were exposed to Judaism, and so they were exposed to both the Old Testament ceremonial law and also the Pharisaical interpretation of that. And Paul was doing battle with both because he was, he was preaching about the kingdom of God, a new thing, and even as he was preaching about this new thing, he had people that were mumbling in the back rows of the church. Uh, Paul's he's talking about Jesus, but he's just not saying enough about um, some of these things that Moses taught us, and so they'd grumble and they'd they'd find fault with the apostle, and uh, some places in like in Corinthians he was almost driven out because these then there were pagans on top of that that had their complaints about Paul. Uh, in uh, the third point, verse eighteen, Paul says that uh, he says let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. So uh, Paul is saying here that the the reward of the union of Christ is freedom from these things, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be placed back under them. Now all of these things were were trials for the New Testament Church. Um the mystery religions of the Mediterranean, of the uh, Asia Minor, had conjured up all kinds of ideas about angels. And in, in the Platonic system, from you know Plato's philosophy, he had a whole range of layers of the, of uh, the wor- the world or existence, and uh, and uh, they went from the divine being down to us. And angels were angels, and people like that were in that one of the layers there and so uh there was a there's a belief in paganism that the way that you could get in touch with god was to get in touch with these upper regions these upper layers these are these, these uh these uh qualities of life and even the the idea of uh, higher beings and um uh, you know in the greco-roman world there, there was just this whole pantheon of uh, they call them gods, but then there—if you study the Greek religions, the Roman religion, there are there are certain there are regiments within each of these groups. Uh, I went to Westminster College, and uh, Westminster College—they took the name the, the the name the Titans, Westminster Titans. So when the football team marched, you know, ran on the field, they were the Titans, uh, you know, strong guys. But the Titans were one layer, one level of Platonic. Uh, the Platonic understanding of the of the world of the of the heavens, and so uh, Paul knew that these things were going on in the Colossian church. Um, what are the other things he mentions there? Verse uh, verse eighteen. <clears throat> uh, well, he speaks of a false humility with the worship of angels, and uh, you know when people when people make up laws themselves or theological ideas, and then say. You have to worship them, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. Um, uh, especially when it has to do with religion, it can come across as very, uh, very humble, very saintly. It go go into the east, eastern religions. People are walking around with the the, uh, the uh, garb, the the uh, I can't think of the color, the orange, the orange color that the robes are made of in Hinduism. And Buddhism, and um, and the, when the when the guy walks past, when the priest walks past, or the the uh, the saint, so called, people will respect him, and they say, "Oh, look at that man! He is a real man of God." You have people here in America that say, uh, "Well, the people in America that they go over to be with these people, uh, the the actor, the actor that I once witnessed to." Uh, Richard Gere. I've told you that story before. But after my witness to him, then he goes over, he he goes, He goes. gets involved with Buddhism. He goes over there. Canola wasn't enough for him. The Jesus Christ of Canola wasn't enough for him. He was more impressed with the saffron robes. That's the orange color, saffron. He was more impressed with those robes. And uh, they, of course they're very fine fabric. They flow, the wind catches them. and that, so It looks lovely. In the same way, in, uh, we're celebrating the Reformation this week. In the same way, when the priests would come in with their ornate hats and their garb and carrying the lights and that sort of thing, people would say, oh, oh this guy must really be spiritual. Do you see what Paul's understanding of this is? He said, yes, it, lo- it may look that way, uh, they, they may, but he, Paul calls it a false humility. Because they're not really in love with Christ. And Christ is the key. Christ is the center. And so in verse 20, he says, Be consistent. If united with Christ, refuse to fret. He mentions more things here in verse 20. Um, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? The word regulation means things that other people have dreamed up. These are not the Ten Commandments. These are not the regulations of God. These are the regulations of all that other people have dreamed up. Um, we have a member in our congregation, uh, Billy Farrell, and uh, Captain Billy Farrell, I should say, retired uh, Army, US Army. And uh, uh, he's constantly regaling us with stories of the regulations that he sees being constructed. Within the Baptist part of our, um, of, uh, our evangelical family. You know, he laments, he says, he says they're, 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 never, they're never concerned about the more important things, about things that we might find in a confession. He loves the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechism. He says, those, those things are important, but when he, he says, all the things that, the, that my friends are wrangling about have nothing to do with the things that God has said. They're all kind of humanistic applications, humanistic suppositions, but they're dividing the body of Christ. There, and he, one of the things he's observed is that they're always the he runs with a more conservative crowd. So the conservatives, they're always fighting about things, and they're in a sense they're dividing one from another within that family. And we don't have as, uh, most of us don't have as much experience with uh, the Baptist side of uh, Christianity as that, but. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with Billy about uh, because he was a he's been a Baptist and he he loves these people, but he he's trying to get them he's trying to he's trying to get them to to love the more important things of the Lord that which is written in the Bible that which is summarized in the Confessions of Faith, but they they and this is proverbial and this is what Paul was dealing with, because people tend to get much more excited about the things which men have thought of. You know, don't, don't smoke, don't drink, don't, uh, don't go with the girls that do. These kinds of things that, you know, the, uh, that used to be marks of fundamentalism. We don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with the girls that do. You know, well, you know, it, it is kind of important not to go with the girls that do. <laughs> but uh, and it's important, that, you know, it's, it's important. It's, it's, I think most of, for most of us, most of us argue that, uh, you know, smoking is not good for your health. But there are other things that are more important. That's the big thing. And we ought to aim at the things which are most important, which then may have a relationship to these other things that we will do. And in verse 21, Paul says to distinguish between the two two systems, or he distinguishes between the two systems. He, he gives an example of some of these things. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So God has his commandments and doctrines. Men have their commandments and doctrines. And we all know that they tend to get much more upset about theirs than his. And uh, that's what we deal with often in the Christian church because I've almost never found a, a problem that arose in the church of Christ, I've almost never found it arising over true doctrine, over the things that were important. It's always over the curtains that the, the deacons bought and, you know, and paid and, and uh, you know, they're, how can you, who chose those? <laughs> and that sort of thing. But if we, if we, if Christ is our focal point, if Christ does, really does enlighten our lives, then his doctrines, his law, his truth are the things that ought to um, um, be really significant for us. Lastly, in verse 22 and 23, um, uh, or 23, it says, These things indeed have the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Now, when you, when you study other world's religions and what they hold up, all of them have a, a list of laws that you ought to do. All of these, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, they all have their lists of things to do. And the whole religion is caught up in that. They're all caught up in doing those things on that list. But Paul says here, these things indeed have the appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are no, that are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, he's saying they have no power over real sanctification, over really becoming more Christ-like, out of growing, uh, growing more pure. What has power over that? What really enables us? To become better people. The gospel. Our freedom in Christ. If you realize your freedom in Christ. If you meditate upon that. If you cultivate that in your mind's eye. The freedom that I have in Christ. Then why would you want to be enslaved. To the things which are outside of Christ. To the things of the world. You see freedom. If you understand freedom correctly. uh, You soar above where the high birds fly and you see the joy and the wonder that they see. That's a different perspective. We're coming up upon the Reformation and I've got a couple of illustrations for you here. This was one of the really big things that possessed the mind of John Knox early on. Freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience. He, when he went uh, he went away to, uh, first of all, he was... Uh, uh, well, I won't say I won't say too much about his education, but he 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 started out in uh, grammar school. He went directly from school to the University of Glasgow. He was sent there because they could see that he had uh, a mind above the rest. And there he came in contact with um, uh, Professor John Mayer, professor of philosophy, and uh, and the, the historians tell us that Mayer. Was not a diehard Roman Catholic. He was somewhat critical of the Roman Catholic Church, but he was he was more critical of some of the outward, the ephemeral outward things of the church. But when Knox went there, he was not a believer, and so he, in God's providence, um, he 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 got exposed to some people, some people that were re- were able or ready to make some criticism of the Roman Church. And then, uh, between the years of 1530 and 1535, um, there was a change that took place in his life. The Holy Spirit was working upon him. And the the scholastics, these super scholars of Glasgow, as they related to the church, they began to fade out in his mind, and the scriptures began to become more significant in Knox's mind. And... um, he began to see the difference between the traditions of men and the traditions of God. And finally, one day, as he was meditating on these things, he saw that all the things of the Lord came from Jesus Christ. And that was the day that John Knox... Uh, became a Christian, but in his Christianity, one of the you see one of the, the one of the sharpest things in his mind was this difference between the traditions of men and the traditions of God. And you follow Knox throughout the rest of his life, and that is a disjunction which he held to, and he held all men to that, including the Pope, and that got him into a bunch of trouble because he measured everybody by what, what is what has God said versus what have men said, and. Um, and that got him in trouble. When um, in 1542, um, uh, James of Scotland, the King James of Scotland, died. This is a different King James than the Bibles come from. It's one of his heirs, but uh, uh, from the next generation, next two generations. But when he died, um, um, he was somewhat of a um, he was somewhat of a kind man, and so he would not let the Roman church go quite as crazy as it sometimes desired to go. But after he died, it kind of unleashed the devils. And um, because of this distinction between God and man, Knox was forced to go uh, to, to England. He was forced to emigrate to England uh, for safety. And, uh, but it was over this idea that Knox would preach the, uh, the doctrines of Christ the doctrines of the Word of God, and not anything else. Now this, this even got him in trouble with the early Protestants because they, they were also, always inching along thinking that, they, that they'd approximate Luther, but they, they never wanted to go too far so that they'd ups- upset the apple cart, you know. And in 1552, um, Knox in a sermon attacked the Pope papacy directly in the open air and he suggested that Roman Catholics were political traitors <laughs> because of their allegiance to the Pope. And he, he the Pope um, decre- declared that he was not only the head of the church, but he was head of the state. And that caused P- 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 Scotland a bunch of problems. I've, I've told you before that in Scotland, the church owned 55% of the land of Scotland. You think about that, 55%. And the way I... The way I explain that today is that the, that land was equal to wealth. So the church owned fifty-five percent of the wealth of Scotland. They were the the church was the billionaires of that day. And, um, and Knox, when he spoke about the evil of the pope and this sort of thing, that just undermined this whole system. And people would say, John, why do you have to speak about? Why can't you just speak about Jesus? Why do you have to apply him to our lives? <laughs> but he had this. He had this habit. He was driven by the word of God, and uh, <clears throat> uh, when King Edward the Six died, um, who was a Protestant king, fifteen fifty three, things were happening in these years. Just it seemed like almost every year something dramatic happened. Uh, the James of Scotland died. James of James the ascended, uh, uh, what, you know, ascended the throne of uh, of England and Scotland together. Well. Uh, his his son um, James the sixth mean, sorry James the sixth died, and Edward uh, his son uh, ruled. But he was a, he was a uh, he was a child king, and he not I forget when he died four, 13, fourteen something like that. He never he he didn't make it that long. He was a, he was a very blessed boy, and he was very favorable to the the Protestants. But uh, when he died, and the and Mary, his sister, ascended the throne. She became known as Bloody Mary because she persecuted the Protestants in England so badly. Well, when, 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 she, when she ascended the throne, Knox was in London. And he was crestfallen because he said that the citizens of London had parades and they rejoiced over the rise of this woman. Well, Scott, Knox knew that this woman was a diehard Roman Catholic. He knew that the Catholics were not going to go by the word of God, but they were going to go by the traditions of men. And he knew that that was bad. Now, none, none of the people who rejoiced in the streets of London that day, they didn't know that Mary was going to usher in a great time of tribulation. And uh, most of the martyrs of the early English Reformation came from this period after Mary and But here are the people, the common people are all out on the streets. They're celebrating. Oh, it's a day of liberty for them. They're out from underneath these Protestants, you know, whatever the reason was for their rejoicing. Probably many of them just rejoiced because she was, uh, she was a pretty attractive young woman, you know, who was going to be their queen. People have all kinds of reasons for choosing their political, uh, the people that they rejoice over them. But Knox could see the storm clouds on the horizon because he knew that Jesus Christ was systemic that it was a whole system. And he knew that there were only two systems, the system of Christ and the system of Antichrist. He knew that one lived on and worked on the laws of God and they were free based upon the truth of the Lord. The others based themselves on the things that men had done. And that was not freedom, but that was slavery. Uh, Knox knew this in his heart and his mind, but the times would manifest themselves, and he was proved right. And uh, the greatest martyrs of the English Reformation—men like Thomas Cranmer, uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Ridley—men like this who went to the who went to were burned to death for their faith—they could see when people when people can't distinguish between the word of God and the word of men. When they're willing to elevate the one to the place of the other. It is a very, very dangerous situation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would be free in Christ. Free from the bondage of men. That we would love thee and that we would see in Christ our freedom. and That we would see how that that principle of freedom that we have in Christ is systemic. It's holistic. It touches everything that we live and do and think. So we pray, O Lord, that we would desire freedom. We pray that we would come to Jesus and uh, cast our load, our heavy load, our bondage upon him. O Lord, free us as a a great Savior might free slaves who are in chains. Free us, O Lord. And then having been freed, we pray that we would maintain our freedom in Christ and not want to go back to Egypt or want to go back to those Things of which Paul preached about here in the second chapter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.